Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, world. I am Reverend Agent L. Robinson II, aka Rev. Rob, and this is Deeper in the Word, where we give you the real about Scripture with people who actually know and understand it so that you can better understand what certain things in the Bible mean, how they relate to your life and experience, and how you can apply something written so long ago to what you're going through right now. And today, my friends, it's on. I'm hyped. I'm amped. We about to get into it. Because the title of our show today is Virtual Insanity, or The Rebuttal Show. Now, why is today's show called that? And why would that make me amped? Because quite honestly, my friends, there have been a lot of attacks lately on the concept of virtual churches. Now, by definition, for all those who may not be aware, virtual worship or virtual church, these terms, they're used nowadays to describe worshiping by means of live stream. That is, church broadcasts and services online and people attend that way instead of coming to the building to attend services. Churches do their Bible study that way. They do a lot of things online instead of inside of a building because of COVID. And so accordingly, a virtual church is a church, is a church which does all those things, the same stuff that a, church, a regular church does. It just doesn't have a building to do it in. It's virtual, okay? And lately, many articles have been written and many interviews have been given by various church leaders, namely pastors and scholars, who are calling this idea of worshiping virtually, of having a virtual church, the existence of it, they're calling it into question. And so my aim here today is to clap back, or rather to offer a rebuttal to all of these good folks, these critics of virtual churches, whose arguments run counter to our missions and goals as a virtual church here at Benevolent Faith Ministries. Now, clearly, y'all can see why we would have a major problem with this ideology, right? I mean, we are a virtual church. We operate fully and completely without a building. But even though we don't have a physical building, we do pretty much all the same things a physical church would do. Services, Bible study, giving and serving, small groups, that's just to name a few things. And according to these critics, who we're going to hereinafter and after refer to as, quote, the critics. <laughs> Every time you hear me say the critics, that's who I'm referring to, these pastors and these church leaders who've come out recently criticizing our model. But according to them, our entitled model, entire model, our church model of a virtual church, it's not only ineffective, but it's unbiblical. They're saying that what we're doing is not biblical. <laughs> so again, the rebuttal. Because I'm sorry, but we're not about to sit here and invalidate all the support that we've gotten from you, the best listening audience on the planet, by succumbing to some, quite frankly, obnoxious assertion that the form in which we minister is unbiblical. So what do the critics have against virtual churches? What exactly is at the root of their beef? Well, first, these critics do acknowledge and agree that given the current social climate, it's understandable that churches would switch to all virtual formats. I mean, duh. But the problem is that they think switching to this format are designed to only be temporary and not long term. 
They claim that a virtual church model is not a sustainable long-term model because ultimately, the people have to assemble together. That's the foundation for their contentions. And they use various scriptures which tell us to assemble together to bolster their arguments. In fact, one pastor spends well over 75% of his article on the subject trying to demonstrate what the Bible says about assembling together. We'll get to all that in a minute. But again, what's the big fuss? What is their major malfunction with all of this? With what we're doing? And the real reason, y'all, the critics have a problem with virtual worshiping is that they believe that many critics have become comfortable with not worshiping together so that even as the government restrictions are being lifted in certain places and relaxed, a lot of people have still chosen to remain at home on Sunday mornings. The critics argue that most churches are now finding it difficult to regroup their members because those members have expressed various concerns about returning. Now, I know a lot of churches gathered that type of information directly from their membership in the form of uh, surveys and polls. In fact, my church did this. Not only did they call me, but I participated in calling other people. And what these surveys and polls are finding is that many people are still genuinely too frightened of the virus to want to come back. And that's mainly due because a lot of people have underlying health conditions that make them more susceptible to the virus than others, you know, like senior saints and those with pre-existing health conditions. And other people, they don't have medical conditions or anything like that, which would make them more susceptible, but they're still afraid to come back and choosing to stay home instead. Then, of course, you have those members who simply like worshiping at home instead of at church, in other words, in a building, because it's easier and more convenient for them. But this is, remember, it's the critics talking, okay? But this idea of worshiping at home being easier and more convenient for people, that is what presents the biggest problem for these pastors and these church leaders. This idea that many people are now saying that virtual worship is just as good as, or the same as, a physical worship assembly in a building. And many people are starting to choose to participate in virtual worship instead of physical assembly. And many people are even planning to continue worshiping virtually, even when all the restrictions are eventually lifted one day. I mean, I'm gonna be real with y'all, I got friends in ministry around the country who have said the same thing. People who are active in the church and always volunteer. They're not so ready to go back. Now this has led the critics to summarily conclude that virtual worship is not an assembly at all, that it's merely a substitute for an assembly, but not the same thing. And their fear is that people will make this the new norm to the extent that people no longer feel they need in-person worship at all. I mean, one pastor even laughed at the notion of, you know, the popular phrase right now of being alone together. He called it self-contradictory, claiming that if somebody is alone, that it's impossible for them to be together with anyone and that pretending to do otherwise doesn't make it so. And that somehow all of this leads to a justification for dismissing the idea of virtual worship as qualifying as an assembly. So all these critics claim that all these things I just mentioned are working towards harming the church body as we know it. Now, having established some of the arguments and positions of the critics, it's time to answer 
their charges with some arguments and positions of our own. Because a lot of what we just read in the form of the arguments from the critics, that goes directly against what we believe at Benevolent Faith Ministries. And we're fully prepared to respond to each and every allegation of these critics that they've levied against our model. So come back and hear how we uh, clap back at these critics after the break. Diamond Cup Building Maintenance is a privately owned business that provides a wide range of janitorial, floor care, and handyman services for all size commercial businesses. Our services also include deep clean and disinfectant cleaning, which kill harmful germs, including the coronavirus. Our team has over two decades of experience, so we can provide the highest quality of services to our customers. This is why we are a sparkle above the rest. Please join our Facebook page to learn more about us at Diamond Cut Building Maintenance. At Benevolent Faith Ministries, we're a virtual church with a real heart for God. Visit us on the web today at BenevolentFaithMinistries.org and learn more about becoming a member, participating in our giving partnerships, and learning how you can be the church without the need of any building. That's BenevolentFaithMinistries.org. Log on today. Welcome back to Deeper in the Word. As a reminder, you can subscribe and listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and on Apple Podcasts in the iTunes Store. Also, don't forget to email us at info at benevolentfaithministries.org to send us your questions and your comments for this show and to get signed up for our weekly Bible study sessions on Zoom called Abiding in the Vine which take place every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Also, don't forget if you miss the live Bible study session, you can always uh, catch the replays of it on our YouTube channel. So look out for that. Today's show is entitled Virtual Insanity or the Rebuttal Episode. And we're taking the opportunity to respond to all of the pastors and the church leaders and the other critics out there who've come out recently speaking against virtual churches and accordingly against what we, Benevolent Faith Ministries, have as our church model. Because we are 100% a virtual church. And in our last segment, we highlighted each of the arguments that the critics have made against virtual churches and virtual worship. So now, that's me rubbing my hands together. What we want to do is re-examine each of those points that we previously highlighted from the critics so that we can refute each point one by one. And we're going to do this debate style. We're going to take it back to high school on y'all, where we give the argument and then we give the rebuttal to the argument. And so first up, we have the argument that a virtual church model is not a sustainable long-term model because ultimately the people have to assemble together and scripture supports this. That's the argument. Well, here's how we rebut to that. Personally, we believe that argument is unnecessary. Of course, scripture is full of mandates for us to assemble together. Nobody is disputing that. And anyone who does dispute that, they're not speaking for benevolent faith ministries. See, the real issue is this conclusive assertion by the critics that virtual assembly is not sustainable. 
They say this like it's already been tried and failed before. The reality is, if we had taken the time to listen to every critic of some new invention or some new ideology or some new institution as it was being implemented, we wouldn't have a lot of things in life that we take for granted right now. For instance, there was a time, y'all, back in the early 1900s, in fact, when riding in taxi cabs could make you a victim because back then drivers could charge people whatever they wanted. So you really couldn't trust the person behind the wheel, especially since ex-convicts could become taxi drivers. So you got some ex-convict driving you somewhere. He takes the extra long route and charges you $200. And then you say, I ain't paying that. And he pulls a gun on you because there was no regulation. But then in 1907, the 30-year-old businessman named Harry Allen bought a fleet of 65 red taxi cabs and hired a team of drivers. And what caused him to do this? He did this after he had been overcharged in the amount of $5 for a three-quarter mile ride in Manhattan. In other words, by today's estimates, he got charged the equivalent of $128.50 to be taken less than a mile away from where he got picked up. Ooh, that's, that's dirty. And so as a response to that current situation, sound familiar? Because that's what our virtual church is doing. As a response to that current situation, he then formed the world's first modern taxi fleet, eliminating price gouging in the process. And now look, today taxi cabs make nearly 400,000 trips a day in New York alone. Twice as many as Uber and Lyft combined a day, almost half a million trips a day because this guy had the foresight to regulate what he saw. What about Thomas Edison? People consider him the father of invention, especially since he owns over 1,093 patents for inventions in the United States alone. But when word got around to the rest of the world that Edison was developing the world's first practical electric light bulb, he got laughed at, he got ridiculed. In fact, one British parliament committee said in 1878 that his light bulb was, quote, good enough for the people in America, but unworthy of the attention and practical or, of, or unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men, talking about the British themselves. <laughs> he was basically saying, you American clowns, y'all can keep that nonsense over there. Over here, we're smarter enough to realize that an invention like that is doomed to fail. In fact, one British chief engineer for the British post office called straight out called the invention a fairy tale, a sham. Flash, fast forward to today. You got a light, you got to turn on in the room you're sitting in right now. Or if you're in the car, you open the door, the light come on. That's all thanks to Edison and his insight. The point being, many things that were once thought to be unsustainable have in fact become major, regular, and oftentimes invaluable parts of our lives. And no man has the authority or foresight to make a definitive, conclusive statement like it's not sustainable if there's no prior failed model against which to compare it. I mean, come on, how can you project the long-term viability of something that you've never seen before? Seriously? And look, we're not here to toot our own horn or pat ourselves on the back because this is God's work and God's vision that we're doing here with Benevolent, with this a web podcast, everything. But certainly the way that we are doing virtual church here at Benevolent Faith Ministries, I can guarantee you 
that there hasn't been a model like ours previously, especially when it comes to our giving partnerships. I mean, churches are always asking for your money for their purposes. Y'all know our model. We don't ever ask for our membership for money. But moving on. Okay, so the next argument is that many Christians have become comfortable with not worshiping together so that even as the restrictions are lifted, uh, a lot of people still have chosen to stay at home on Sunday mornings. And because of that, churches are going to have a hard time regrouping their memberships. Now, here's where we really get into the delusion of the critics, okay? Take note of how the critics here use the word regrouping to describe the church's efforts to get everybody back into the building. Because see, in these types of critiques of a virtual church, the critics have failed to consider one critical element. And that is the fact that maybe the people don't want to be regrouped back into the church atmosphere that your building was providing. Because the reality is, the church was failing its memberships for decades prior to COVID. So when you say, well, people don't want to come back even after restrictions are lifted, you're failing to acknowledge that the church had major image issues way before COVID hit. Membership was already declining. Attendance was already declining. Dude, a 2019 Gallup poll found that the percentage of Americans who report belonging to a church, synagogue, or mosque, a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, is at an all-time low, averaging 50%, and that U.S. church membership, U.S. church membership, excuse me, was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976, and that for the past 20 years, there's been an acceleration in the drop-off of church membership and attendance with a 20% point decline since 1999. And more than half of that change occurring, ooh, half of that change occurring since the start of the current decade. Now, in other words, people were already in the process of decline. And the point of that is, there was a reason for that decline. And even though we could sit here and nitpick all day about which reasons are responsible for the decline, the fact remains that the church has not effectively worked to reverse or even stop the decline. You dig me? So when the critics claim that churches are having a hard time regrouping their members, this provides an implication that people were cool with going to the church as it was. It assumes everybody was happy and content with the status of the church prior to COVID. It suggests that people would prefer to go to the building if it were available. I'm sorry, but the statistics we just read don't bear that out, Chief. This also discounts the idea that people may not want to come back because of reasons other than just COVID. That, for instance, people may be overall disappointed in their church, and that's why they don't want to come back. I mean, clearly, we can agree that there is much to be disappointed in the church about, right? I mean, do I even need to give examples here? We did two whole shows on this already. <laughs> so anyway, let's get on to our next argument. And that is this. The critics say many people are, are saying that virtual worship is just as good as or the same as physical worship assembly in a building. And they like worshiping at home because it is easier and more convenient for them 
and they even plan to continue doing it when all restrictions are eventually one day lifted. Easy and convenient, huh? See, again, this assumes to speak for people and what they think about the current state of the church. <laughs> easier or convenient. Yeah, maybe it's easier and convenient for them because they can actually get a seat in the church at home and not have to sit in an overflow room and feel like they're not a part of the actual service, which has happened to me and my wife before. We went to a, a church here in Atlanta where a very famous R&B singer is the worship director and we couldn't even get in the building. We weren't even late. We were like 15 minutes after service started. You couldn't even get in the building. They had an overflow room to the overflow room. <laughs> easy and convenient. Maybe it's easy and convenient for them because they don't have to worry about taking a five to 10 minute shuttle ride to the church because the parking situation at the church is so crazy in the actual parking lot. <laughs> easy and convenient. Maybe it's easy and convenient for them because at home, they don't have to feel marginalized by having a pastor with bodyguards around them who act like they're gonna toss you out the door if you even come close to them or say hello. Again, when you assume that people only want to worship virtually because it's more convenient or somehow appeals to their sense of laziness, you discount many underlying truths behind why people don't attend church. And that's not to excuse those reasons, but to simply acknowledge them as real factors which affect or determine people's attendance habits. Now, as for virtual worship being the same as or better than regular worship, that's simply a matter of personal opinion. But again, it's arguably more productive to examine what caused such a personal opinion in the first place. But y'all, we just scratching the surface. So come back and share the rest of our rebuttals to these critics, which uh, we'll do after the break. My name is Christopher James McClendon. I am a professional Christian counselor. I am offering an eight-week Christian counseling group 100% online. During the eight weeks, I will personally walk you through my book, Seven Steps to Receiving God's Blessing. This group provides measurable results. I believe in faith and works. The Bible is God's word and science is God's works. Therefore, I integrate the two to help bring about healing in the lives of others. If following these seven steps motivated my recovery from permanent paralysis, imagine what it can do for you. Find out more by visiting stateanchor.org or call 678-723-6800. You can also follow me on Instagram at saltpc. Welcome back to the show. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook. Just search for at Benevolent Faith Ministries and like our page to support us. Also, as I mentioned before, you can find us on YouTube at Benevolent Faith Ministries. And don't forget to join us every Monday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern during our live prayer call line. And if you can't make the live call, you can call the prayer playback line, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in order to hear what you may have missed. Amen? And on today's show, my friends, we are lovingly... <laughs> smacking our critics upside their heads for claiming that a virtual church is unbiblical and not sustainable. And we're going point by point based on some recent criticisms and articles written by pastors uh, in recent weeks. So on to our next argument, which is virtual worship is not an assembly at all, that it is merely a substitute for an assembly, but not the same thing. And people will make this the new norm to the extent that people will no longer feel they need in-person worship at all 
which they consider, the critics being they, consider a major problem. Now look, the basis for this argument involves the concept of falling away. In other words, the critics take the position that we have to meet together like this because if we don't, people may fall away and or form habits that lead them to ultimately falling away. Now, falling away means, you know, neglecting your relationship with Christ, falling away from that, falling away from the church body, falling away from fellowship, until ultimately that person is no longer involved at all with the church or the things of God. So according to the critics, if we don't meet together in person, people will fall away. And one pastor even points to the author of Hebrews as having bolstered this point throughout the uh, Hebrew epistle. Um, I have a newsflash for the critics. People are already falling away. In fact, the people have been falling away for two decades. We just read that. It's not hyperbole on my part. All you have to do is simply Google the phrase declining church attendance for yourself. And all that information, all that same information I just read off will be right at your fingertips. So then the real question becomes, what church are these guys looking at? Because quite frankly, their whole position is delusional and based on some idealistic view of the way they think or perceive the church to be, or the way they think or perceive people to treat the church, the way it looks and how it operates right now. To claim that virtual church comfort could lead to falling away of members is so disingenuous. When members have been falling away for decades, when the church has a building already. I mean, come on, at that point, you're just looking for scapegoats, I'm sorry. And again, the consistent quoting of biblical verses to support the idea that assembling is biblical and thus virtual assembly is not uh, biblical, it becomes like a crutch to their argument. It's the only thing they can lean on heavily. I mean, this idea of we must assemble, like we're some holy version of the Avengers or the Transformers or something. And as we've already said, yes, we do have to assemble. But again, why is a virtual assembly considered not considered a real assembly? The Greek word that means assemble as used in the Bible and its many variations, including to assemble together or to gather together, is a pisinagoge. And in no form or variation of that word does it ever signify that that assembly has to go on inside a building or a dwelling. And so to the critics, I say this, don't tell us there's an implication that the text was always supposed to mean physical assembly in a building because that limits the vision of God. That says God could have never imagined that one day people from across the globe could be united virtually as one body. Quite honestly, who in the world are these people to enter the mind of God and suggest what he would or would not know or do in the future? You're limiting the power of God. By saying that it's unbiblical to meet virtually, you're saying that the people who meet and pray every week right now virtually, what, they're unbiblical? Their meetings are invalid? I just mentioned, um, my church, been meeting online since March, doing all type of stuff. Are we unbiblical? My physical church here in Atlanta. The point is, none of these verses indicate that the meeting together has to be face to face. That's not what the text says. That's not what the translation says. Furthermore, 
one of these pastors writes about how we can't suggest that if they had the opportunity, the churchgoers back in Jesus' time would have opted for virtual worship instead of in-person worship. Because, you know, at times when they went to worship in person, they, they can get killed. Oh, but wait, this same pastor goes on to suggest that the Bible makes it clear that we are to assemble in a building. Didn't I just say that the text doesn't say that? So why is he implying that? Again, we read the text and we saw the Greek root of the word. Where in there does it say, oh wait, in order to qualify as an assembly, it has to be inside of a building or a dwelling. A building or a dwelling. It doesn't say that. So he should not make such a speculative implication if he doesn't want his opponents to make the same type of implication. Listen, if people are praying and participating in small groups more online than they were when the building is open, than the building was open, how is that unbiblical? Is it the goal to spread the gospel and make disciples? How is that goal circumvented or undone simply because it's not done in person? Furthermore, if a virtual church such as ourselves aren't just doing virtual assembly, but are also engaging in forms of physical assembly, such as our mobile church initiative, which you can learn about on our website, then how does that scripturally disqualify us as a church? This idea that if you don't meet physically, you're unbiblical, I'm sorry, it reeks of a personal spin. There is no reason to disparage one model in order to promote the other unless you have an agenda for doing so. I mean, you know, I don't want to accuse anybody of any specific agenda, <coughs> money, <coughs> but really, the proof is in the pudding. When the advice the critics give flies in the face of pure logic. Well, what do I mean by that? Here's a perfect example. And again, without pointing out the pastor's name, I do want to highlight this particular pastor's recent article in a Christian publication. And this particular pastor is one of the main critics of virtual churches. And, and in this article, he's talking about the impact that the coronavirus has had on the church, particularly from an attendance standpoint. And to paraphrase what he says, it's essentially that while we keep saying the coronavirus justifies staying away from worship, he claims that we should consider the model of the churchgoers in Jesus' time, and particularly, again, as outlined in Hebrew, and especially verses 32 and 34, where the author is exhorting the people to meet together for regular worship in order to encourage and strengthen each other. So basically, he claims that the sufferings of the early churchgoers the plundering of their property, because that's what it says in the text, the public scorn, and the killings in some instances, his position is, well, those things didn't cause those ancient churchgoers to stop meeting, to neglect meeting together or worship. So we should be doing the same thing. We should be brave just like them. He believes that our responsibility to attend physical church right now at some point should take precedence over our fears over catching it, of catching uh, coronavirus. Because according to him, back in Jesus' time, they faced death and persecution. So what makes us any better or different than them? I'm sorry, but you don't have that position unless you have an agenda, brother. What right-minded pastor puts his people in potential harm's way under the guise of, well, back in Jesus' time, people were killed just for going to church. We need to follow their example and buck up 
and go to service despite this pandemic, despite governmental restrictions still being in effect in some places. Dude, how selfish is that? I mean, really. And I'm not making this up, y'all. This guy really said this in this article. And again, if anybody's interested in reading the article for yourself, email us here at info at benevolentfaithministry.org and we will gladly send you a copy of the article so you can see it for yourself and realize that we are not making this up. And not only is this a dangerous sensibility to promote, this idea that we need to go to service in the midst of this pandemic and despite governmental regulation because this guy believes we're not as committed or not as brave as the early Christians. Not only is that dangerous, it's highly irresponsible. You don't pressure people into coming back to the building by basically calling them puny weaklings in comparison to their ancestors. <laughs> At least you don't do that if you want it to work for you. That whole ideology is unbiblical and God clearly doesn't support it. Oh, you don't believe me? How about you go ask those defiant pastors who died recently from COVID-19? Okay. Oh, you ain't heard? God bless their souls, but at least two and arguably several more pastors in the United States have died from COVID-19 after they made public statements about how COVID wouldn't affect their services and how they were going to continue on as normal. In other words, they had this exact same attitude as this pastor who wrote this article talking about we need to go back to church despite COVID. That being, well, God is larger than COVID. We're not afraid of it. So we're going back to business as usual. In fact, one of the churches where the pastor died they didn't even practice social distancing when they opened back up. They literally went back to business as usual. Again, I'm not making that up, y'all. You can Google it, it's facts. The point is, how can this pastor tell others that their actions are unbiblical when the advice he's giving them is clearly unbiblical? You cannot guilt trip people into coming back to church, period. Unless again, you got an agenda. You would not try to stress a biblical mandate for us to meet as some sort of guilt trip for getting the people back in a building unless you had a different motive for getting people back in a building, period. <coughs> Money. <coughs> you don't beat people over the head with a Bible in order to force them into coming back, especially if they don't feel safe. In fact, a lot of churches are not opening back up until 2021 and they've already confirmed as much as with their members. Recent reports suggest that as many as 5% of churches nationwide have already decided not to reopen until at least the beginning of 2021. So are these churches suddenly now going to be labeled unbiblical because they're gonna be spending the rest of this year doing virtual worship? We start to see how ridiculous that argument is. Now, coming up in our last segment, we're gonna finalize this whole argument with one main truths that both the physical church and the virtual church community all need to grasp and understand. So come back and find out what that is after the break. It's back. Benevolent Faith Ministries is excited to announce the return of the class that started it all, our Tuesday night Bible study class, Abiding in the Vine. The class is held live each week on Zoom, and you can obtain the meeting ID and other login details on our website, benevolentfaithministries.org, 
Or you can email us at info at benevolentfaithministries.org for the info. In addition, you can follow along with us live during the study by going to our website and downloading the class study sheets. Just click on the Bible Studies link and then click on the desired study, then you're all set. That's benevolentfaithministries.org. Log on today to become a part of our global community. Are you looking to complete a home purchase? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, Meister Home Inspections, or MHI, offers professional and accurate home inspection services throughout the Northeast Atlanta area that provide home buyers and sellers, as well as their agents, with the information they need to successfully complete any home purchase. Visit their website at mhihomeinspection.com, that's mhihomeinspection.com to learn more, or to set up your home inspection appointment today. Welcome back to the show, where our topic today is virtual insanity, and we're addressing the critics of our virtual church model. So in our previous segments, we've gone point by point against the arguments that the critics have made against virtual churches and virtual church worshiping. But you know what? To wrap this all up, allow me to explain why any type of church is really immaterial. Because that's the bottom line, y'all. Being the church requires each individual to make a commitment that extends beyond merely assembling together in a building. Whether virtual or real, if the people don't respond to what the church is putting out there, then it won't matter what type of church you are. There is an individual mandate first. Each individual must explore, examine themselves. Where do I fit in in this church? How can I most effectively be a part of it? and then work that in to the mission of the church. That involves a lot of self-reflection. Whether you are a virtual church or in an actual physical building, your effectiveness doesn't depend on your location. It depends on the activity and the commitment level of your membership. As a church, when your methods are geared towards drawing people in instead of preparing them to go out into the world, you're doing God a disservice because you're making it about presentation instead of about substance. In other words, if you have this big, beautiful, expensive building and it's just gorgeous and you got the best praise and worship team in the world and your music department is fire and all of that, but then the people inside your building don't do the work of God when they leave the building, then bro, your building is nothing more than a fancy country club. The true effectiveness of the church hinges upon the activity of the people in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit. The people have to do their part, which means serving and giving and studying the word as well as fellowshipping with others, period. And you gotta do that whether it's a physical building or not. The onus is on the people. <laughs> like one of these critics claims that, well, a person can meditate and pray and think about spiritual things as well as, or perhaps better than somewhere else than in the church. And these things should be done in places other than the church. And then he says, but there are some things that can be done only in assembly. And again, assembly here, he means gathering together physically by saying that. But let me ask this. He says, there's some things that can only be done in the assembly. 
What are those things exactly? What exactly can you only do in assembly that you can't do virtually? I mean, aside from hugging people. What is it? To, to suggest that a virtual church cannot encompass all these elements effectively is not only false, but it's downright ignorant because it's already happening right now as I'm speaking. Listen, man, I'm a minister at a mega church here in Atlanta, all right? And ever since early March, when the building shut down and the worship and ministry aspects all moved online, our church hasn't missed a beat. Now, again, I'm talking about my physical church here. We ain't missed a beat. In fact, new membership is still going strong. And in fact, new membership is up in the church amongst people who live in other cities. People have caught the services online, caused them to join the church, and they live in different cities. The fact that new membership is steady and that it's actually increasing amongst people in other cities is a testament to the fact that people do accept the virtual worship idea. And we're not just talking about babes in Christ either. I've taught some of the new member classes since early March. And many of those who joined the church were well-educated in their faith and in the Bible, and they had extensive records of diligent volunteer and service work in their previous churches. They didn't come in not knowing anything. They came in educated. Not only that, right now, people are serving in the form of food giveaways and prayer walks. And recently, they had a back-to-school supply giveaway. Okay? So riddle me this, all you critics. If a mega church is doing that already and is being effective, why can't a virtual church? I mean, neither of us have a building right now, correct? Both of us are using the same platform to get services out to their people, are we not? Both churches are being active in the community, aren't we? Both churches are committed to biblical instruction, including those which demand that we train up our members in discipleship, right? Both are engaging in major church tenets of praying together, studying the word together, worshiping together, and giving and serving. So what's the difference? At the end of the day, if you as a church are engaging in all of the activities that a church is supposed to do, then what difference does it make if there's not a physical building in which to do all those things? I mean, look at us as a virtual church, for example. We have a prayer call every Monday morning and a prayer call playback line all week available for those who missed the morning, Monday morning call. And that callback line is available 24-7. We have a 24-hour phone message system that takes prayer requests and other messages and somebody get back to you right away. We have Bible study on Tuesdays, deeper um, abiding in the vine. We have weekly audio devotionals called A Few Minutes of Faith, where we give the word of God on topics relevant to daily existence. We have a Facebook page, Benevolent Faith Ministries, where you can keep updated on all of our events and where you can actually join our church by liking the page. We have a kingdom blog where we give the word of God's knowledge on various subjects relevant to kingdom residents. And coming soon, we have a major huge announcement about how we plan to take this global virtual church body ideology worldwide. And of course, we have this show with new episodes available every Wednesday and Friday. So in reviewing all of this, again, the question becomes, what is the difference between what we as a virtual church are doing right now and what the mega church in Atlanta is doing right now? Why is one model considered biblical and the other isn't? 
Think about this, friends. If a new model comes along to counter the old model, which as we've already seen and discussed, the statistics clearly show is not working, that being the old church model. If a new model comes along to counter the old model, then what's so wrong with exploring the potential for the new model to grow and prosper in the name of the Lord? Because that's what we stand on as a virtual church. And again, it highlights my initial point here, friends, and that's this. Whether you are a physical church or a virtual church, if the people do not possess the sincere ability to serve and give and study and show themselves approved, then it doesn't matter where you are because you're going to be ineffective regardless. And we are committed to being effective, even as a virtual church, because we know that whatever God has ordained, he will maintain and sustain. Amen? Listen, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, you can subscribe and listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and on Apple Podcasts in the iTunes store. Also, don't forget, you can find us on the web at benevolentfaithministries.org. Log on now and learn more about our giving partnerships and to find out how you can be the church without the need of any building because at Benevolent Faith Ministries, we're a virtual church with a real heart for God. And we'll catch y'all next time. Holla. Holla.